Friday, we found out that uh, the province is, of course, uh, they've released their framework on uh, the selling of recreational marijuana when that's legalized. Kathleen Wynne said Ontario will allow the sale of recreational marijuana only from government-run standalone outlets starting next uh, summer with 40 shops and uh, they will then grow to about 150 by 2020. They'll also have some online sales, I think. And the LCBO will operate the stores and the uh, website using OPSU members. And Smokey Thomas, the uh, president of OPSU, says that, hey, they're ready. They are ready to go and they will be trained and ready for you July when you want to purchase your cannabis uh, we're joined right now by a man that doesn't think that is the case, Jeremy Jacob. He's the president of the Canadian Association of Medical Cannabis Dispensaries. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me here. All right. So you don't have a lot of faith in uh, the union staff being ready to uh, sell marijuana by then. Why? Well, um, I actually never said that. Um, there are training programs available in the U.S. Um, I guess the key thing is, there is a lot of expertise and a lot of knowledge required um, in dispensing cannabis. Um, one of the things that is, is really common in a dispensary is to determine the, the experience of a consumer, to determine their tolerance for cannabis, and, and help them make a pick that will give them the right outcome. Um, that kind of process, I don't see that in liquor stores. Um, you know that when kids become of legal age, and they get into into a store, a liquor store. No one tells them, "Hey, be careful. This is toxic. You know, you you might end up with alcohol poisoning and in the hospital." Um, so start with a low dose and go slow. That's a pretty typical thing that we would caution someone. And you don't see that type of care and attention with the dispensing of alcohol. How much time should be spent with a client? You know, especially a relatively inexperienced one when you're ready to purchase medicinal, not medicinal marijuana, but when it becomes recreational. I know you have experience with medicinal, so that's why I frame it in that. But how much time would you spend with someone? Um, a recreational person, you know, looking for cannabis. Again, the same things are going to apply. You have to determine their level of experience, their intended outcome, and then some potential product selections. And, and something that applies, whether it's recreational or medical, is, is looking for any potential drug interactions with, with CBD, cannabidiol. Hmm. Um, you know, we are the most heavily medicated society in history. Um, opiates for pain, um, anti-anxiety meds, uh, you know, we have a plethora of stress disorders. Um, there are so many people who are looking for options and who are medicated for something. Um, you have to make sure that there are no potentials to you know, to undermine an existing treatment, even so, with recreational cannabis. So should stores keep a customer profile? I was buying something in a, just a retail store the other day, and they're like, hey, do you have a customer profile with me? I assume they would have everything written down of what I bought in the past. Should that be kept when you're purchasing something like marijuana, when, you know, when it's available to us, so that you can then make not only um, an educated purchase the next time based on how you felt with that certain strain of marijuana, um, do you think we should be doing something like that? Well, that's definitely what we do now in, you know, in our dispensary in Vancouver. Um, we have a piece of software that creates a member profile. We can make notes about uh, whatever they're dealing with, any, any interactions or negative interactions, and a complete history of what their purchases are uh, to, to help them tune in on what works and, and what doesn't work. So in a, in a retail, in a recreational environment, that's not as important, but there are going to be cases where that's very important. So it has to be very mindfully done. 
Um, you know, one of the key things with um, with cannabidiol is blood pressure medications, or actually any medication that has an interaction with grapefruit um, has the same thing with CBD. So really? Really. I had no idea. Um, yeah. Now, that's really interesting. Now, you, you've mentioned your d- dispensary a few times. Is this one of the legal dispensaries, or is it, as they say, operating illegally? Well, are, are you government, are you one of the government... Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've been in fully engaged with the city throughout the licensing process. We have a couple of more hurdles to climb over, but we fully intend to comply with the city and have our license in place, hopefully by the end of this year. Okay, so um, in your opinion, do you have to smoke marijuana to sell it? Because, you know, Chris's you know, uh, mom could go out and get a job at the new pot shops if she wanted to. Maybe she doesn't smoke pot. You know, should she be the type of person selling it? I should have brought my mom up instead. Chris, your mom's younger. That's the only reason why I brought her up. But let's just say an average person that doesn't smoke pot wants to get a good union job. My mom would not know how to sell you pot. I'll just, <laughs> we'll put it that way. But should, should you have to smoke the product in order to sell it, in your opinion, uh, Jeremy? Well, I think that, you know, the, the easy answer is no, you don't have to. You know, there's no, you don't have to. You don't have to. But I think that it's a benefit. Um, having a good understanding of this plant uh, will, will help you communicate to others, will help you you know, understand others and, and will help you, you know, give give better service, essentially. Right. Um, you issued a report to the feds on the uh, path to legalization and you uh, illustrated some key points that you think were crucial um, to legalizing marijuana. And one of the things you said is you believe that steps should be taken to incorporate existing supply chain into the legal system. And you cite a couple of places in the states that you think did this well and places that didn't. Do you want to just very quickly in the last couple minutes explain where you think it was done right and why you think that they should be um, licensing the existing dispensaries? Well, the, thanks for asking that because that's a really important thing to highlight. Um, you know, there are 60 million people in the U.S. living with recreational cannabis regulation, so there's by no means a, a lack of, of, you know, case studies to look at. Colorado, uh, in my view, one of the most successful um, rather than go to war with the black market, they encompassed it within their regulatory framework. Um, you'll find that most people in the cannabis industry today want to be regulated. They, they want to be part of this new legal economy, and they put their, their lives and freedom on the line to, to participate. Uh, many of them are very passionate about the benefits of cannabis. Um, so treating these people, you know, when you acknowledge that the laws are wrong, and you continue to treat people like criminals under wrong laws. This is a, you know, this is a sense of mixed message. Um, if it's not about the money, why don't we include everyone? I mean, I know that uh, Ontario's asked for more than a quarter billion dollars to enforce its laws. That doesn't sound like legalization. That's just a different version of prohibition. Um, so Colorado involved its existing players, both suppliers and retailers. Um, in 11 months, they had a functioning system with a seamless transition to regulated sales and tax revenues. Um, they had tremendous consumer buy-in because it was the same shop, the same products. Sure. So um, you're going to your guy. That's right. You just keep doing what you're doing, and the, the government begins to collect tax revenues. Washington excluded the existing market. They took twice as long to come to market with their regulated sales. Um, they had lower consumer buy-in, very high prices, product shortages, um, and a thriving black market. Um, to this day, the black market is very strong in, in Washington, and 
and very weak in Colorado. So those two examples really show that I think Ontario's taken the wrong start with their program. And you're in Vancouver, and you said that you're very close to being, uh, you know, you're talking with the government right now. Uh, Are you hoping that Vancouver's going to get the framework right and include all of the dispensaries that are already existing? Well, I think that if we follow the Colorado model, the Colorado, uh, the Denver um, city government went to the state with a list of approved and compliant retailers. And the state accepted those, gave them the first dibs at retail licenses, and actually gave them the mandate to um, make partnerships within their supply chain and create licensed producers. So in a single piece of legislation, they undermined the black market by regulating it, and they reduced the burden on police tremendously and and had a very uh, they now have a, a strong thriving boost to their economy is there any part of you that because i mean right now you are dealing in the black market is there any part of you that feels bad about the fact that you're going to do a flip-flop like you've been actually doing business with people and then you might have to switch and go well you know what we've been legalized now so sorry guys well that's one of the big um hurdles we have to overcome i mean as as president of our organization one of my mandates is to maintain continuity of access for patients so that means the transition of existing storefronts, um, but also a, tra- a, a continuity of the products that they've come to rely on. So things like pain topicals, um, you know, various types of tinctures, capsules, um, skin, you know, eczema medicine, you know, skin topicals. There are a, a whole plethora of incredible products that are made by these craft producers and, and processors here in BC that would all be illegal. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have CBD dog treats. That so many people rely on the dog business is is tremendous. Dogs with anxiety, dogs with inflammation. So with uh, with uh, the choice to be regulated and turn aside all of these products and leave your your members hanging, um, versus be unregulated and continue selling those is something that I think every dispensary owner will have to wrestle with. But I, I think um, being regulated and being part of the new economy is the is the first and, and, you know, the most important goal. And having our supply chain included will be a continued battle for us to ensure that, you know, these good people are, are able to maintain their, their livelihoods and do the good work they're doing, and that our patients are able to access the medicines that are helping them. Well, Jeremy, it's been interesting talking to you. I'm going to keep your number handy, and I guess uh, probably within the next year or so, we might pay you another little quick call to find out how things are going there and uh, you know, talk about how things are going here in Ontario. I really appreciate your time today. Well, thanks for having me, and I look forward to keeping in touch. All right. Cheers.